I really think the fall is worthy of our slow meditation because the other parts of the biblical storyline are enriched by our understanding of the fall. And I know that it technically is like one chapter. It's Genesis 3. We call that the fall chapter, except that's awfully reductionistic. It is the chapter where the fall occurs, but the rest of the Bible is unfolding in the fallen world. So the effects of the fall, the need for redemption, all of that actually is narrated in stories and it's prophesied in oracles and, and lamented in Psalms and all of these different genres that are all entrenched in the reality of a world that is not the way it should be. So we're, we're gonna be helped as Bible readers as we try to grapple with that big subject. And using Genesis 3, we can think of it like a lens through which to see the rest of scripture. On this episode of Theology for the People, my guest is Mitchell Chase. Mitch is a pastor in Kentucky, and he is also the Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. On this episode, Mitch and I discuss how a better understanding of Genesis chapter 3 can help us understand the entire Bible in a deeper way. His latest book is called Short of Glory. It's put out by Crossway Publishing, and it is a biblical and theological exploration of the fall. So we look into this topic in this discussion, and we discuss some other issues in regard to Genesis 3, such as the priestly role that Adam had, as well as the naming of Eve and why that's so significant. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. I'll be back at the end with a few comments. Here's the episode. Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Nick Cady, and I'm joined today by a new friend. This is Pastor Mitch Chase. Hey, Mitch, thanks for being on the program today. Nick, I'm glad to be with you, brother. Thanks for the invite. Mitch, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, where you serve, what's been your journey up to this point. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and our family's been here for 13 years this summer. We're originally from Texas and then moved to Kentucky so that I could do doctoral work at Southern Seminary here in Louisville. And, and we stayed in Louisville after graduating there. I did a PhD in biblical studies and Along the way, connected with the church where I've been serving as the preaching pastor at Cosmosdale Baptist Church since 2012. Uh, so Louisville is our home, and I get to the joy of, of teaching courses for Southern Seminary and Boyce College here in the city. I'm an associate professor of biblical studies for Southern Seminary. And so our life, you know, here in Louisville looks like academic work, pastoral work. I love to write on things that I'm passionate about, including the book we're, we're discussing today. My wife, Stacy and I have four boys, so life is very energetic, to put it mildly. They are age 14 down to age six, and uh, so we got one teenager in the house and then others teenagers-to-be. So that's, that's a bit about our family and what we do here in Louisville, and uh, yeah, thanks for, for asking. Cool. Hey, do you think Louisville and like Kentucky, does that count as the South? I'm never quite sure. It seems pretty far north, but... You know, I'm... I'm open to the argument that it is. My leaning is that it's described this way, but I have, I've had conversations with people here in the city where they are, they're quite adamant that this is not the South. And, but, you know, there's a, a flavor to Kentucky that's very Southern. And so I know what people mean by mm. it. Yeah, being from South Texas, like the, you, you, you're definitely from the South right. geographically, but here in, in Kentucky, you know, there, there's definitely Southern aspects that make that claim make sense. <laughs> It, it's, it's an incredibly divisive claim, though, it turns out. Some people do not think this should be considered the same. 
Yeah. So, so there is not a unanimous agreement. I had a friend, a good friend who moved to Kentucky recently. I've never been out there, but he lives, I think he lives kind of like in Eastern Kentucky near the mountains and he oh, said yeah. it's really nice. So yeah, there's some really beautiful spots to this state and Louisville is, you know, not quite like the rest of Kentucky. It's a very big city and uh, Kentucky, especially with parts of Eastern Kentucky, just really lovely lay of the land. Mm. Louisville's just ridden with allergies right now. Okay. So right. it's le less beautiful and then more more allergy and pollen everywhere. Gotcha. So that's okay. Let's talk about your book. So your book is titled Short of Glory, A Biblical and Theological Exploration of the Falls. This was published by Crossway. And I found a great mm. summary of your book when I read through it recently. And this is a summary. It's in your conclusion chapter. It says, one way to conceptualize the drama of scripture is to understand the role of Genesis 3 in the storyline. Now, before I have you mm. unpack that thought, mm. just you know, tell me what led you, like what was kind of the process? How did you come about wanting to write an entire book really based on and focusing on one chapter of the Bible being Genesis chapter three? Yeah. It, there's, I definitely do not desire to write a book on every Bible chapter. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was interesting to want to set out on this one. And for years, I've wanted to do something on Genesis 3. It's just been in the back of my mind. I have felt quite entranced by the content, the conversation between the evil one and the woman, the pronouncements by God that affect humanity in the garden, the themes of exile, shame, messianic hope, these, these things that are just all compressed in this brief chapter. It, it just seems so pivotal to me in the biblical storyline. And obviously, this is what interpreters have recognized for many centuries. So I, I've been entranced by the chapter for reasons that would probably seem obvious to interpreters. And I wanted to, I wanted to tackle a, a writing project on this chapter by, by showing interconnections and developments of these themes and ideas in the canon of scripture. So the goal, and I think the, the subtitle probably brings this out a bit, a biblical and theological exploration. You know, what I'm trying to do is situate Genesis 3 in light of the canon. Like in the whole big story of scripture, what is Genesis 3 doing? So that was the, the bit of the background and interest in the writing of the book itself. And then the actual unpacking of the chapters, I try to essentially go through the chapter section by section. There's probably some, some, if I remember right in the process, there's some early, maybe a chapter or two early on, introducing and laying some groundwork for things. But I do want to go through the chapter, you know? And, and so over the course of 13 chapters of my own, I try to take the reader very slowly through a very pivotal section that, of God's Word, and it's a section that changes everything. It's like the dialogue scene in a movie or, you know, the action sequence in a film where everything's been changed after that. Mm -hmm. You're like, that was it right there. If I, had, if I had slipped out for a moment and then came back in, everything's different now. What's happened to the world? So that was the, the lead up to the book. And I was really gratified to be able to, to complete this project that's been on my mind for a lot of years. Yeah, that's cool. What are some ways that a better understanding of Genesis chapter three can help readers understand the entire Bible? Because that's, that's really yeah. kind of the premise of your book. There is a paradigm, sometimes broken down into four parts, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Entire evangelism presentations will sometimes revolve around this fourfold paradigm, trying to explain what it is that Christ has come to do. So we think about creation, we think about the fall, redemption, consummation. This is the big picture. And if we were to tell people about the Lord Jesus, 
and what he's done on the cross and his victorious resurrection, it is helpful to first meditate on what our human condition is and why it is what it is, what's happened in the world. And creation in that fourfold paradigm, the word creation is followed by fall because God declared the world good and pronounced his blessing over creation. And now there is a fallenness and a twistedness, a brokenness in the world and a sinfulness in our human selves. If we think about redemption and consummation, you know, what is, what is being redeemed and why is there a need for redemption? Consummation, you know, consummation that brings what to its appointed end, what has happened. I really think the fall is worthy of our slow meditation because the other parts of the biblical storyline are enriched by our understanding of the fall. And I know that it technically is like one chapter. It's Genesis 3. We call that the fall chapter, except that's awfully reductionistic. It is the chapter where the fall occurs, but the rest of the Bible is unfolding in the fallen world. So the effects of the fall, the need for redemption, all of that actually is narrated in stories and it's prophesied in oracles and, and lamented in psalms and all of these different genres that are all entrenched in the reality of a world that is not the way it should be. So we're, we're going to be helped as Bible readers as we try to grapple with that big subject. And using Genesis 3, we can think of it like a lens through which to see the rest of Scripture. It's not the only way to understand the Bible storyline, I know, but using Genesis 3 as a kind of lens might be a fresh approach to looking at all these different themes that we are wanting to grow in our understanding of. So that's the that's the idea. Yeah, you know, I'll just tell you anecdotally, when I picked up your book, I had kind of two hesitations before I dove into it. I was interested and, and wanted to, but I wonder if even our listeners, you know, in, in hearing about your book initially might resonate with some of my hesitations. I had two mm -hmm. hesitations. One was, I thought this whole book is going to just be a bummer. And, you know, because it's just, it's about the fall and man, that just stinks. Could it be a downer? It's going to be a downer. <laughs> okay. So just first, firstly, I want to say it was not, it was actually incredibly hopeful and, and very Praise good. The Lord. Okay. The second thing I was like, now I know that Genesis three is a theologically rich chapter. It's a chapter I, as a preacher, always hmm. find myself coming back to, especially around pivotal times of the year, talking about the incarnation around Christmas and, and talking about the need for redemption around the passion week and all that. But, you know, I was like, an entire book on this, eh? Are you really going to be able to, to squeeze that much out of this? And I, I just felt like after having read it, I don't think you were doing a lot of squeezing. I think you're just, uh, you know, showing mm. different angles and different, you know, parts of, of the story and how they point to the gospel and actually helps us understand the gospel better by understanding the mm. fall. And uh, one thing I'll tell you I really appreciated in your book that you did and I, I really enjoyed it in almost every place you did it, which was you would, you would look at different ways that people interpret certain passages and consider hmm. those interpretations and then kind of weigh them versus other interpretations. I thought that was really helpful because you brought in different ways of looking like, for example, when did Satan fall? Did he fall? You know, is this passage in Ezekiel talking about? Is this passage in Isaiah? Yeah. Was there any kind of approach to that that you, you know, you obviously put some thought into that. I was just curious. Yeah. I wanted to be as fair-minded as I could be, and I hope that comes across in the book. I'm glad that seemed to be the impression you received too, 
that uh, there are different interpretations that are not about primary issues on some of these verses in there. And I, I wanted to not write the book in a way that sounded overly dogmatic. I mean, there are some non-negotiables that I think are important. I mean, the historicity of these characters and the event of the fall and the, the real promise of the Messiah. I mean, the, the, these are things that are actually quite central to Genesis 3 and the rest of the storyline. But un understanding things like, you know, the, the fall of the evil one and how people have understood that, there are, there are a variety of ways people have tried. And I wanted to make my own argument, obviously. I didn't want to avoid the, the issue. But I wanted to address those passages and, and hopefully give readers a different way of looking at something. You know, in my own background, sometimes a, a matter of interpretation that's not about a primary issue, you can still learn those and, and growing up that it might not be intended as such by, by the people that you're influenced by, but you can still grow up thinking, well, this is the only way to look at this matter. Like, this is the way to see it. There's no really other option or angle to look at it. And then you find out after some reading or consulting some commentaries, oh man, there might be a variety of views actually to understanding this. It's actually not so obvious to everybody that this is the way it must be. And, and I, I, wanted to, I wanted to write about some of these issues in a way that showed there's more than one way this has been understood. Here's the way I think should be the, the place the evidence directs us to, you know, the best arguments. But, uh, you know, I could be wrong on some of the smaller matters that are evidently disputed in the history of Christian interpretation. So we want to read the Old Testament as Christians, and one of my goals in trying to unpack some of this is to deal with texts that are later than Genesis. So you're right that if I'm talking about Genesis 3, at one point in the book, I'm going to bring up Ezekiel or Isaiah or some part of Revelation. And th this is, while my conclusions might not be something that every reader is persuaded by, and that's fine, I do think the impulse is a Christian reading of the Old Testament because I'm trying to read Genesis 3 in light of later scripture. And that's a really key building block for my own hermeneutic as an interpreter. I'm trying to approach Genesis 3 by not only looking at Genesis 3. And that the way to understand this chapter is to also zoom out, to zoom in at the trees and also at the forest so that we see a totality for the chapter. And it just gives us a lot to chew on, you know, a lot to, to, to mull over and, and to reflect on. And if we, if we do that as readers, um, someone can read this book, I think, and they might not have all the different theological assumptions I, I have on different matters. And that's okay. I think they can be rightly encouraged and challenged by the book and helped by it. So that's the prayer. Yeah. So one of the key passages in this chapter is Genesis 3.15. It's often referred to as the Proto-Evangelion or the first gospel. And I love this quote yeah. that you have from Charles Simeon in chapter 8. Mm -hmm. This quote says, Now as the oak with all its luxuriant branches is contained in the acorn, so was the whole of salvation however copiously unfolded in subsequent revelations comprehended in this one prophecy, which is in fact the sum and summary of the whole Bible. I mean, what, any mm. thoughts on Genesis 3.15 as, as really I'm, that acorn? I'm glad you brought up that quote. I love that quote. Mm. That is just tremendous. The imagery of, of acorn to oak tree is so helpful because it, it indicates an intentionality in what is planted with what grows out of it. You know, we have an apple tree in our backyard, and we never, we never wonder what kind of fruit 
it's going to grow the next summer. We're like, we, we know what's coming. We know the kind of tree it is. So we know that with what's planted and what grows, there is a continuity there. The storyline of the Bible is a, a redemptive epic. That's not the only phrase to describe the Bible, but we can say that this is a redemptive story at the very least. And in this redemptive story, it is growing out of a need made clear in Genesis 3 because of the sinfulness and rebellion of God's image bearers. A promise is made in Genesis 3.15 for a coming Messiah. Now, we don't know everything in Genesis 3.15 that later scripture is now going to unpack for us. We only get little glimmers here. There's going to be a defeat of the evil one. It's even going to come at the cost of the victor's own suffering. I think that in Genesis 3.15, the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman is, is actually the kind of strike that would be a lethal one. So I argue in the book that we are to picture something like a venomous snake bite, that someone gets a bite on their heel and they die from it. And yet this will be a victory, a, a victory accomplished through death. I want readers to consider that, yeah, later Old Testament and New Testament revelation show us that Jesus would come and die. He's the promised son and that his victory is accomplished through the work of the cross. But if we wonder where the, the deepest and, and, and most fundamental idea of that can be found in scripture, where his victory would be through suffering, well, I want to suggest, how about Genesis 3? Like literally the, uh, the first messianic prophecy is it is the fountainhead for this hope that the coming son who would be born from the line of Eve would achieve victory through suffering. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think that's teased out, you know, across the scriptures, similar to the way an acorn later grows into this mighty oak tree. So that, that imagery from Sim, Charles Simeon is so helpful. And if we're attentive, we can see how the book of Genesis reveals to us the need for and the hope for a Messiah. And the rest of the Old Testament builds on that foundation. It, it's a wonderful thing to see. It's thrilling to see the inspired writings of the scriptures and how there is a coherent story and especially messianic hope as a theme it's glorious mm. one of the things i like that you brought out but i think it, it just kind of illustrates a reality which is that later writers of scripture as they're inspired by the holy spirit of course they though they still keep looking back to genesis 3 themselves so this isn't like mm -mm. this isn't like something that we today are imposing upon the Bible and saying, no, 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 this is the really important part that the that explains the rest of the story. But actually, That's biblical right. writers for thousands of years realize this. And, you know, you can see that in the New Testament where it says, like, that God will crush Satan under your feet, you know, referring back to Genesis yeah. 3.15. And then even right. one of the ones I really liked, and this was one that surprised me, was how you brought about, brought up the idea of the curse upon the devil, the serpent and how he will eat the dust of the earth, and how that mm. imagery of eating dust is then used by other Old Testament writers to describe the fate of God's enemies. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, you know, it's really fascinating because it, it looks as if then Genesis 3.15 is picturing lines of descent, both that are the seed of the serpent, that will in some way demonstrate in their words and actions like a serpentine or an allegiance to wickedness that is like the seed of the serpent themselves, as if the evil one is rightly considered their father, just as Jesus alleged against those Pharisees that your father is the devil, you know, the murderer from the beginning. And then there's the seed of the woman. Now we know we're looking for the Messiah, 
But the Messiah also has a people, just like the serpent himself has a people. And in the intermingling of, of stories and narratives across the, the storyline of Scripture, we find a constant conflict between the people of God and those who are hostile to God's people, animated by the forces and principalities of this world. And, and so that hostility, where is it rooted? Well, ultimately, it's rooted in the spiritual realities foreshadowed in Genesis 3. And, um, and, I, and I think it helps explain the importance of the church persevering through hardship and suffering despite persecution, because the seed of the woman continues to be you know, assaulted and, and confronted by and, and the desire to subdue the people of God by the seed of the serpent. So yeah, those, those pictures are really key in the scriptures, the dust imagery. You know, the scriptures will sometimes portray God's enemies like the serpent being defeated, like their, their face is being put in the dust and they're licking the dust or eating the dust. And that imagery, if it makes us think, well, that sounds like Genesis 3.15. Well, I think the, the interpretive response ought to be, well, of course it does. That's exactly the kind of thing the biblical authors do. They're helping me see God's enemies as having the spiritual reality of the serpentine heart that defies the Lord's word and hates God's people, just like the evil one himself. So that imagery in Psalms and elsewhere is really key. And I think it's definitely built on Genesis 3. Once we start to see that, once we start to see that, I think windows of insight and illumination open up for us as readers. It's, again, a thrilling thing to see how interconnected the Bible is. Mitch, let me ask you this. What are some of the most common misunderstandings, you think, about the consequences of the fall? You know, one, one consequence that is mentioned in Genesis 3 with regard to Adam is that in pain, he's going to eat of the ground all the days of his life, and thorns and thistles shall be brought forth for you. By the sweat of your face, verse 19, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So I have heard people sometimes envision the age to come as a, a time of new creation free from labor, as if labor and work is really sort of a consequence of the fall. You know, we work hard and we labor and we have the grueling sweat of the brow because, you know, we're in a fallen world. But I don't think that's quite accurate. That doesn't hit the bullseye of the biblical storyline. If we go back to Genesis 2, before the fall in verse 15, the man is put in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And Adam is not in sin in Genesis 2.15. There's not a, a brokenness or an expulsion to Eden in this chapter. There is a tree of life, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The woman is given to Adam, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, Adam declares. They're in the covenant of marriage. Genesis 2 helps us see that there is responsibility, there's relationships, there's good labor, and that that's not a result of the fall. So a, a misunderstanding would be to look at Genesis 3 and say, ah, oh, you know what, you know, vocation and work, you know, having to provide and, and work the ground. Maybe when all things are new, we won't be doing that. And so I'm just wanting to push back on that idea. And I'm wanting to say, work is given by God and is good. And the temptations to laziness or the temptations to overwork or to find our identity in our vocation and the bewilderment and, and sadness of working and working and working and then maybe losing everything, labor that feels in vain, 
there, there are certain nuances that are true because of the fall. Certain temptations and challenges that are what we experience because of the fall. But it's not work that's the problem. You know, it's not labor itself that is a consequence. Instead, work is good and labor is good. We need an enriched, glorified capacity, which we will have in the new heavens and new earth, that we might enjoy and live out all of our godly work and responsibilities. Even in Genesis 1.28, they're called to subdue and exercise dominion. That sounds like work. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, God blesses it. He blesses it. So let's, let's forever ignore caricatures that would in some way diminish the importance and value of labor and work. It is good to work. And, it, and, and there's a, a sense as image bearers, when we work hard at something and we bring that to completion, and there's a great satisfaction in that. And that's not about sinful pride. I think we're meant to be gratified by good work. And so I think Genesis 3 speaks to that. You know, it helps us see now work has elements of complexity and hardship that weren't true before the fall. But, you know, the Lord is redeeming these things. And in Christ, all things will be made new and we will have all the capacities for glorious labor that God has designed us for. So that's our future. We're not going to be like sitting around in the new creation, floating on clouds, trying to figure out what to do. Instead, we will be living as God's image bearers in our fullest capacities and, and glory before God. So that's a wondrous thing. Yeah, no, that's really good. You know, I realize that you are a Christian theologian, so this might not be directly in your wheelhouse, but I'm curious, as I was reading this, I was wondering, yeah, how do Jew Jewish people, like people who are non-Messianic Jews, like how do they read Genesis 3.15? How do they read this chapter? What is their interpretive lens that they're reading it through, and how do they make sense of it? If I'm on point with this, my understanding is that they don't see this in a messianic sense, but they see this as explaining the kind of conflict that people see between good and evil. So it's true that not every interpreter in Jewish or Christian history has necessarily seen a messianic hope here. In fact, John Calvin himself was reluctant to see messianic hope in Genesis 3.15, which surprises a lot of people. But at the same time, I, I, do, I do grant that it requires seeing Genesis 3.15 in light of certain later passages that help work out a messianic hope. So I'm trying to hold Genesis 3.15 alongside a whole myriad of other texts that I think make it even clearer. But certainly, Jewish and Christian interpreters have not always had a messianic instinct there. Got it. Okay. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Hi friends, Brian Broderson here, and I want to let you know about the CGN International Pastors and Leaders Conference coming up here at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, June 25th through the 28th. Our theme this year is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And oh, how we need the Spirit of God uh, to be upon us in these days. So we're going to be digging down into that great text from Isaiah 61. We're going to be looking at all the different facets of it. we got a number of great voices that are going to be speaking to us. We're going to have times of prayer and worship and lots of fellowship and enjoying meals together and all kinds of wonderful things. So if you would like to be part of this conference coming up in June, uh, please get signed up today. You can do that at conference.calvarychapel.com. Once again, that is the CGN International Pastors and Leaders Conference, 
June 25th to the 28th. Hope to see you there. In one of your early chapters, you talk about Adam as actually having a priestly role. Could you Mm. explain that a little bit? I think that concept might be foreign to some people. Yeah, so the lead up to this is that he's placed in a garden to work and to keep it. And when we read that Adam is placed in a garden, it's natural for me, as it might be for many of your listeners, to just think about rows of dirt with vegetables or, or plants that are growing in the ground. And yet, this is an ancient Near Eastern text, and God, the king of creation, he creates Eden and plants a garden there, and he puts man to work and to keep it. There are trees there. There's beauty and lusciousness. There is a variety of, of, of trees for them to eat from. And this is not just rows of dirt. We're, we're to view the Garden of Eden as a kind of sanctuary because God dwells with Adam and Eve. We're told in Genesis 3 that the Lord comes to the garden, and that's anthropomorphic. You know, they're, they're describing the presence of God in human-like terms that God walks with them, okay? We're not to envision, you know, legs with feet, of course, but in some way, the God of heaven, he dwells with Adam and Eve in a way that is meaningful and that enriches their lives as God's image bearers. And that, you know, a temple is the place a deity dwells. A sanctuary is where you would go for worship and communion in the ancient world. I would want readers and of this book to notice what biblical theologians have noticed for a long time, and that is the Garden of Eden is depicted in ways that later tabernacle and temple constructions seem to echo. In other words, when the tabernacle is built and it has an eastern entrance and the presence of cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant on the lid, there's a reason that these various materials and figures like a cherubim and an eastern entrance are important. The clustering of those things are all echoes of Eden. Adam and Eve are exiled out of an eastern entrance, and the cherubim are put there to guard the way back to the presence of God so that they don't reach for the tree of life and eat it and live. Instead, they're exiled to death. And and therefore, sanctuary and the Garden of Eden, those things might not be paired together always in a reader's mind. But if we can start to think of them together, man, it's going to help us so much thinking about the theme of dwelling with God that begins in Genesis. And of course, it is the climax of the biblical storyline in Revelation, where we dwell with God in his unmediated glory. One other thing I'll add about Genesis 2.15 is that the man is put in Eden to work and to keep the ground. And the pair of these verbs, you know, these verbs each occur separately in the Old Testament. But in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, when these verbs occur with a pair, as a pair, one of the things that we notice is that these pair of verbs are associated with the work of priests, the priests who are to work and to keep the tabernacle. When Adam is to work and to keep the garden ground, I don't think we're just to imagine a farmer. It's not less than that. It is more than that. We're to imagine Adam as a kind of priest king, someone who is to keep God's place clean, fitted. In other words, when the evil one, as the serpent, comes in and lies and twists God's words and wants Adam and Eve to turn from God's good commands, Adam, as a faithful priest, ought to have rejected this. Adam's role in Genesis 3 actually demonstrates his failure as a priest. So what we need, 
What we need from Genesis 3 forward is someone who will be a mediator or a priest king for us and not fail. Mm. And so Adam's failure provides the background for the good news of the gospel where Christ is our greater priest, who is the last Adam, and he's come and has not failed in any of his tasks, never wavered, but instead accomplished all that God has said, never turning from his words, but holding fast to them. So that this imagery of, of Eden, if we, can, if we can associate it with a sanctuary or a temple, a kind of proto or pre-temple reality, and Adam as a priest, that's going to help us so much with the Old Testament, because mm. those themes of priest and sanctuary are all over the place in the Old Testament. For sure, yeah. And then it, it points us to, of course, Jesus, as you mentioned, as our, as our yeah. greater high priest and king. But you know, one other thing that that does, like, and, and you're alluding to this, but it's like, you know, it helps us understand that the later talk in the Old Testament about priests and tabernacles, et cetera, it's not just like coming out of left field. Like God was like, well, right. how about this? Like, let's try this now. It's something which is actually <laughs> always is built in. It had to do with the fall. And now it's building up to the second Adam, the true priest that we need. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Okay, here's another question for you. You talk about Adam's covenant with God, that essentially Adam mm -hmm broke covenant with God, but you mentioned that this covenant is commonly known in theological talk as the covenant of works. Now, I can mm. just imagine a lot of people hearing that statement and misinterpreting it, meaning that they might assume that when you say covenant of works, what that means is that the way that Adam would be saved, for lack of a better term, is just that he would be saved by his works. So could you explain that term, covenant of works, what it means, what it doesn't mean? Yeah. So what I have in mind here, and this is in a chapter called A Broken Covenant, chapter six, it is trying to argue that when Adam is made by God, they have an arrangement together that can be thought of as covenantal. And the particular uh, covenant features, though the word covenant doesn't appear, it doesn't have to appear for the concept to be present. We don't want to make the word concept fallacy as an interpreter, that if a certain word isn't present, this passage can't be teaching this certain concept. Instead, Adam is actually given a command. It's prohibition in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord blesses him, gives him a command, promises him a particular thing if that command is violated. So there's a warning and a penalty that would be enforced. If, if God has given Adam these various things, these are covenantal ideas. And, uh, and I think that Romans 5 also treats God in relationship with Adam in a way that offsets the relationship that we have with Christ in a new covenant. So we have a, a covenant that Adam is in, in Genesis, and then as the first Adam, we await the last Adam who will form a new covenant. And, uh, and therefore, there's this federal headship, we would call it, that what Adam does as a covenantal head it impacts others, and so also with the Lord Jesus. When I, when I emphasize this phrase, covenant of works, on page 86, I'm borrowing from the language of theologians throughout church history that use this phrase to say, Adam was called to obey the Lord, and so God has given him commandments. It's not as if Adam worked his way into God's favor. You know, that's not what this was. That would be a misunderstanding of the covenant of works. Instead, Adam was to demonstrate obedience. 
he was spoken, he was told about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. He was given free reign of the trees with the exception of the prohibition about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and therefore, if Adam were to have continued in this time of growth and maturation and submission to the Lord, his, his particular earthly state would have increased and no doubt his communion with God and even what it would mean for him to be alive, not just alive in an earthly sense, but what the tree of life held out for him, everlasting immortality, bodily life, unending. I, I think we should see, therefore, that Adam's failure leaves a gap that Christ himself as our mediator fulfills as the last Adam, and that Christ himself keeps the commands of God. Christ himself does in our stead as our new federal head what is then counted to us. So while we are all dead in our sins and trespasses in Adam, in Christ Jesus, we are found alive in him. We are made alive and brought from darkness to light, and our sins are pardoned. We are justified by grace through faith. And all of this good news, so the, the federal headship matters. Sometimes the, the decisions and actions of Adam aren't thought of in headship federal terms. But I think the need for that kind of thinking still exists because of passages like Romans 5 and elsewhere. We, we need to see how the actions of Adam had implications beyond Adam. There, there, and as the first man, first human being, first image bearer, there is a, a rightful position then that Adam has, not because he asked for it, but because he was made by God and then given commands and responsibilities, which he neglected, even rejected would be the better word. And so those are some thoughts there about you know, God's covenant with Adam and the importance of Christ's work in light of that. And Romans 5, I think, is so helpful there too. Yeah, I think that is really helpful. And it answers a question that, you know, many people have when they start reading the Bible or considering Christianity, which is just the, the question of how is it that one man's actions can lead to the sin of all people being sinful? And then, of course, Christ's actions is one man, you know, affecting all of us for salvation. That, of course, is dealt with in Romans chapter 5, like you're talking about. But what we see hmm. that that is very fundamental to understanding the Bible. It's also helpful when reading passages like, you know, 1 Samuel 17, right? When we're talking about David and Goliath, like here we have an important foreshadowing of Jesus. It's not just a story about how like, you know, you shouldn't wear Saul's armor and that God can be your, your guy who helps you accomplish or overcome your giant, your giant problems, but rather mm -hmm. it is a foreshadowing of really what the whole Bible's about. Okay, one last question before we end, and that is this. You mentioned at one point when you talk about Eve as the mother of all living, you say mm -hmm. that Adam essentially does nothing right in chapter three, with one exception, that he does mm -hmm. one thing right, and that is that he names his wife Eve. That Help us understand yeah. that. Well, so it's interesting that in Genesis three, we refer to Eve's you know, conversation with the serpent. And if we were to zero in on the text itself, it never uses the name Eve with the serpent. It just calls her the woman. Now, obviously this is still Eve in view, but we're, we're reading backward with the name Eve. And we're, we're saying that, you know, Eve listened to the serpent and the serpent said this to Eve and Eve responded with this. Eve ate and gave some to her husband. We know that this is Eve, but the name Eve doesn't come until verse 20, which is nearly the end of the chapter. 
And in the value of Eve's name is that it's associated with the idea of giving life, of, of, of living. And if Eve is going to be the mother of the seed of the woman to come, if not immediately, eventually, you know, she will be the, the one from which the line of descent of the seed of the woman comes, then Adam naming her Eve is a response of faith. God has rightly confronted the sinning pair in Genesis 3. He has justly pronounced things that address their lives and the life to come outside Eden. And yet at the same time, this tragedy is mixed with grace because he's promised a deliverer who will come. And I take verse 20 to be Adam's response to God's promise. If Genesis 3.15 is about the line of descent that will raise up the seed of the woman, Adam calls his wife Eve because she will be the mother of all living. I think it's Adam's way of saying, God, I believe you. I had not acted as I should have in the garden, but with what you have revealed that is to come, I believe you. And the, the naming of Eve is a great thing that Adam does. I think it also demonstrates some spiritual encouragement here. I remember growing up thinking Adam must, must be in hell, you know, with what he did. The idea of Adam responding in faith, that Adam would, would continue to have a communion with God, I had not thought through those sorts of things at all. I just sort of simply assumed a contrast between those who had followed the Lord, and then there was like Adam, that wicked sinner, and all that he did, and certainly condemned because, you know, in him he condemned us all. But I don't think that's quite right. I don't think it's an accurate reading of the rest of Genesis 3. It doesn't tell us that at the end of Genesis 3.19, when this pronouncement is made about Adam, that Adam rejects the Lord or seeks to live in defiance of the Lord. Instead, he names his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all the living. And then the Lord clothes Adam and Eve with garments of skins that he himself provides for Adam and Eve. And I take verse 21 to be the Lord's confirmation that Adam and Eve are in communion with him as, as the God of heaven and earth. You know, they know him. He's clothing them. They can't save themselves. They can't deal with their own shame. What they've done was wrong and egregious. And the one that they need is God. They need God. They've been alienated from God, and yet God is the one they need. So I, I think if, if readers will ponder the role of Adam, not just in his sin, but near the end of the story, that naming his wife Eve is an act of faith in response to God's revelation, where he says to the Lord, I believe you, in a sense. So if, if readers will think about that, I think it helps us guard from any wrong directions with the character of Adam, namely thinking that Adam is, must be eternally condemned and you know no hope for him. I think by the end of Genesis 3, we realize there's actually hope for Adam. Yeah, and one of the last things you point out in the book is something which I've always marveled at, and I think that many people don't, maybe haven't thought through or maybe misread, and that is that the cutting off of Adam and Eve from the garden with the cherubim, mm. with the flaming swords, so that they will not eat of the tree of life and live forever, 
is actually an mm. act of mercy, right? Because it is keeping yeah. them from living in this fallen state forever. Instead, God's plan, which is going to unfold throughout the rest of Scripture, is that he is going to make a way for them to be redeemed and be reunited with the tree of life. But in order for that to happen, they have to die and then be raised again to new life so that they don't live forever in this fallen state. So in the end, Amen. what might seem like to people, you know, God almost, I mean, at worst, being petty and mean is in reality an act of mercy and love. That's right. That is so true, Nick. And, and I, I think if we would consider the mercy of God in that way, we could add to it that Adam was told in Genesis 2, you know, in the day, in the day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. And we also recognize some mercy of the Lord because Adam continues to live a long time outside Eden. Mm -hmm. He lives centuries and they have many children and Adam's lineage and the generations that follow because of the ages of those given before the flood in Genesis five, we can recognize that Adam had many generations of these long living individuals for Adam to bear testimony about what he had done about the consequences of that, about the Lord's grace and mercy. And so it's really good news that Adam could, could then live out the rest of his life as a witness to God's provisionary grace, the promise of a Messiah. I think all of that ends up getting worked out in due time, but the, the seeds of that are all sown right there in Genesis 3. Yeah, it's been so good, Mitch. Where can people find out more either about this book or other things you've written or maybe you're preaching, things like that? Yeah, well, so let's see a few things come to mind. Amazon has been a great place to locate the books that I've written. There, this particular book released formally this week, when we're when we're talking at least, it's this week. And and so if they go to Amazon, they can find it there. I know Crossway's website will sometimes give discounts to Crossway members and, and other special sales. So I'd love for folks to check it out. Maybe Crossway site or Amazon would be the easiest places. I'm, I write a, a, a weekly newsletter called Biblical Theology on Substack. If, if people would like an emailed newsletter that deals with topics in biblical theology, then you can find me at mitchchase.substack.com. And I use that newsletter feature to write on biblical theology topics, things that I'm passionate about, as well as things that I think will, will help us think about the Bible together as readers. I'm the pastor of Cosmos Dale Baptist Church, and on Sermon Audio, our, our sermons are there. So there's a, a number of places where, where the Lord's given me opportunity to be an encouragement to listeners and readers. So those are the places you could find my stuff. Awesome. It's been really good. Yeah. Thanks so much, Mitch. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. If there's ever a topic that you'd like to learn more about, there's a section on my website where you can submit questions or suggest topics that I can cover here on the show. That can be found at nickkady.org. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet. That way, when new episodes are released, they'll be delivered right to your podcast app. And if this episode was helpful, please share it with others. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best way you can do that is by leaving a written review on Spotify or on the Apple podcast app. Those really help to boost this show in their ratings. So if you do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, God bless you.